Welcome to Pathless Podcast. In the beginning, there was backgrounds written with the DM about the characters that had lots and lots of important information. Then, on the first day, the DM released information to the players in the form of role-playing, where the players were supposed to get the ideas, connect them to their backgrounds, and come to conclusions. Some of this had happened. Not all of it has. I'm Ben here to provide you with a Season 1 recap so that you have all the information you need going into Season 2. That includes you, the players. So the idea behind this recap, obviously, is to save you the time that it takes to listen to the 24 plus hours that our first season spans across if you just want to get a recap yourself or if you just want to jump into season two. So I can't promise that this will be enjoyable, but I thank you for coming along for the ride and uh, this will just be a part one and hopefully I'll get a second part out that finishes the season. But this is episode zero through 12 and mostly I guess like episode one through 12. We start the campaign with Corian arriving at Fingen's farm to introduce himself out of respect for a fellow landowner. He finds that Fingen has posted for help in town at the Thromberg archive where Notch works. Morva's backstory had a trip to tell us before Tribeck, where he was told a man named Uno likely created the beast pendant that he found in the dead hands of one of his dragonborn people after the whole entire town was slaughtered. He is in Tribeck, which is a hub for some of Felicia's arts, given its location toward uh, near Unity, which is the, cap, uh, the nation's university. Notch is still currently working at the Thromberg Archive. Baybreeze has run up north after a semi-break-in slash robbery in Piazza, where he discovered a strange earthen horse. On the way to Tribeck, he found ruins at a forge farm, which intrigued him so much that he copied the elvish inscription he saw beneath it. These ruins were a mural of a bunch of elves worshipping, um, and a lot of strangeness was happening, but it was so decrepit and broken apart that it's hard to tell. The characters all meet up at the Thromberg Archive uh, for different reasons, varying reasons, but the short and quick of it is that Baybreeze can't read elven books. Notch insinuates that his co-worker, the half-elf Job, has a drinking problem. Baybreeze thinks Travis Dorth would be happier if he picked up a hoe. Travis Dorth is a larger man who is in charge of all of the guard work at Tribeck and Unity. The group bands together over Fingen's calling for help on his farm. His animals are being killed, and they've decided that they will camp out in his barn and protect the animals and find out who is doing it. Our group ultimately ends up capturing half-elf Unity student Jack Dufarson. Babries almost shoots him. There's a chicken coop. Babries kills Fingen's son. Notch goes down by a wolf, fails a sla- saving throw. It becomes clear upon inspecting the body that it was Fingen's son, who visited earlier that day, but only Morva knew him and that he was using a chime of opening that he stole from Fingen to break in and push his father towards a retirement. Baybreeze is given the chime of opening, claiming that it is fragile, Fingen claiming that it is fragile, and has limited use as an apology for having to shed further blood due to Fingen's son's folly. Fingen pays the characters for their time and engages Baybreeze over the script that he has from Hick's processing plant, that's the ancient elven script. He believes it was miswritten, but sends the group to a teacher at Unity, Torga Eversay, who will be better suited to read it. Corian finds that Travis Dorth, who he does not like and does not think should be in power, stood up when the town needed him most and keeps his position to this day because of it. We find that Fingen has to be part of politics, according to him, since Felicia was founded. The characters head over to Unity to meet with that teacher uh, for varying reasons that we will see. 
but uh, Unity is a converted elvish keep that looks ancient. It's very beautiful. It's larger than the Keep of Mercy, which is Corian's keep. His father is a very important man and a very ancient elf. Um, but this keep, um, Unity, was reworked to become a school. Travis Dorth's security cottage is on the way to Unity, north of town, in a field. And um, after they get to Unity, they find that different parts of Unity are decorated different ways. But one of the hallways, the history hallway, has pictures on the wall. One of the pictures in Unity shows soldiers standing armed at a line with no one in front of them. Uh, when they meet Torga, they find that he is a very old and short elf who looks very frail. He was at the mural when it was made and claims that it was a dark time when religion ruled over knowledge. After falling asleep, he translates the script, the day when the moon took over the sky and a new race was born. Morviz asks to find Rita as a troll by Torga who doesn't like her. It is seen that the forge is replacing nature and religion. Following the troll, they try to find Rita Bright Sky, and they go into the science department and actually see the room that will later hold the moonstone that they need to find. After breaking into Rita's office, uh, they find it empty and are told by a student that she's on the roof doing class, and that's normally where she hangs out. Morva states that there are no, no doors where he lives, and the DM states that there actually is a door that he doesn't know about, and that's followed by ominous noises. Morva rolls a three on an intelligence check and tries to lower the lift machine um, that gets the students up to Rita's class on top of the roof. But uh, using his strength in a non-intelligent way, he bends the metal arms that make up the elevator and earns himself an inspiration point. The students cannot get down. Notch yells up to the students and Morva gets a nine trying to bend the metal back but is unable. Corian uses message to communicate with Rita over the yelling that Notch was doing so that she can actually talk back. Notch gets the metal workers, Frank and Dave, who would prefer to have built something and used a catapult, uh, catapult for food delivery during the two weeks of construction, but Notch directs them to use multiple students to help them move the fuel tank for a torch that will just fix the problem instead of building something new. Rita comes down. They find that she is a pretty female half-elf with silver, uh, silver hair and a crescent moon birthmark on her right cheek, and she knows nothing about the day the moon took over the sky, though her specialty is astronomy, and lets Morva know that the beast stone that he has is made by a forge press. This means that they are mass-produced. Notch asks about the silver moon that flew past him uh, back when he was studying on the mountains in his background, and provides him with the power and renowned closeness with astronomy in the sky. Rita tells him that it is unlikely that what he thinks was a moon truly was one. Morva and his friends are invited to a history lesson Torga is giving his students later that night after being mistaken, or after Morva is mistaken for an object by Torga due to his bad eyesight, but also the rarity of dragonborns, uh, especially, I guess, at Unity. Rita, we find out, is a minimalist who doesn't like carrying items or being weighed down by items in general. Notch finds that members from Rita's father's side share the crescent moon birthmark on their cheek that uh, she also has. Babrius finds that Unity does not believe in writing down knowledge or reading it from books, but instead in word-of-mouth teaching with uh, hands-on application of that knowledge. The lesson that Torga has invited them to is a history lesson about the Dragonborn, and that is why he wants uh, Morva to attend. Characters go to the singular religion department teacher, Professor Fiddledad. 
Babries is left alone in charge of the class, and within seconds of uh, introducing himself, the teacher leaves. Babries proceeds to dazzle them with his tales of piracy and convinces 40% of the students to pursue a life at sea. Fiddle Dad offers to share with Babries what gods may be referred to by the inscription that he has from the mural, but Babries says no and fails to hear information about the two gods that may or may not be being summoned if this ritual is enacted. Sam's fairy Ochnus shares that information later before uh, the ritual is actually finished, but it is too late. Fiddle Dad uses magic and confirms to Babries in his desire for the horse that it is magical and valuable. That's the earthen horse we're talking about there. Babries leaves a calling card with Professor Fiddle Dad. Notch reads into Forge and finds some ratings that state that Forge has its founding in mysticism. This uh, is in relation to a conversation that Rita and Corian has where she calls Corian a mystic for being a magic user. Babries receives a book, so you are out of rope. Uh, the characters leave for the time being and head back to Unity when it is time for Torga's class, uh, just tidying up a few things in town. When they head back to Unity, there is a full moon on the sky, and on the way to Unity, Notch and Corian hear muffled yelling and uh, growling coming from Dorth's gatehouse. Babries breaks into the gatehouse, which is normally outfitted with a bed and a rug and a table. Babries finds a trap door in the floor, which they follow and find an underground prison. Locked within the nine prison cells are many half-men, half-beasts going wild, and one older human woman who was the one yelling uh, that they heard when they were walking past. Babries is unable to pick the lock uh, as she pleads to get out, and she shares that the guards are gone because they've changed into some sort of werewolves, and uh, they weren't supposed to. She claims that she had been traveling with these lichens after they've killed her son, destroyed her family, and believed her to be a moon goddess. She shares that her name is Mytholite, and the group imprisoned uh, themselves by choice. That's the group that she's traveling with. They, uh, the group are adventurers, battle a fat and scared werewolf guard who returns through a hidden passage that connects to the field above the prison. He appears to take damage from non-silvered weapons, and some assumed it was Travis Dorth, but it was not. Babries begins loading a lichen within a cell uh, with some arrows from his bow as it stands helpless, trying to fight back. Ultimately, the characters make attacks against all the imprisoned lichens until they show signs of breaking out. At this point, Babries and Morva free Mytha and throw blue ice, which is a very expensive liquor that Babries had gotten from helping Fingen, and a torch into the prison, which starts a large fire. Mytha states that there is a moonstone related to the curse, um, and that's the curse of lycanthropy, in Unity that they need. Morva grabs her as she tries to run to Unity and picks her up. The players find the Moonstone being tested by Rita, Jack Dufarsen, and a couple other students in the room with the claw that they saw before in the science wing. Babries uses up his chime of opening, unlocking classroom doors, looking for this room. Even upon finding the classroom, the players do not barge in and take the Moonstone. They actually sit and watch to see what is happening. They find that as light enters the Moonstone, it actually turns it into a focal point and a laser-like beam on exit. The players choose to protect the classroom uh, until the characters inside the, you know, classroom are done testing it. 
and while they are waiting outside protecting the classroom, four men with matching red and black uniforms come and attack trying to get in. More of a cones of colds, most of them to death. Uh, class ends, and the characters move the bodies from the hallway into Rita's class, where they tie them up and interrogate one of them, who is able to wake up, and he states that he was promised he could be changed into a lichen from the group that he works for. Also, it is found that they were recruited in various towns around Felicia. He refuses to give more information since it will remove any chance they have of being turned into lycanthropes. Mytha states that the group she was traveling with has no affiliation with the group that this men in red and black were working for. Mytha avoids Quarion's questions about knowing the leader who directed the group to lock themselves up so that no one would get hurt. She shares her parchment related to the curse of lycanthropy that she and her group were working off of. It seems that her group was planning on collecting these items with the hope of removing lycanthropy from the world, and this other group that uh, is represented so far by the men in red and black are also collecting those items for an unknown purpose. Uh, she also lets the players know that they um, that her group she was traveling with knows much more than the players give them credit, and the rest of the books that the, her group has are likely being burnt as they speak by the fire that Babry started down in the jail. Notch uses his telepathy to get a k noise from the mind of a bandit when asking the name of their group. Rita and Mytha both want the Moonstone. Uh, Mytha states that the group she was with had intent of summoning a god with the Moonstone. She tells them that there are other items needed and that they will have the power to end the world. To uh, help convince the players, she says she will show them the rest of the ancient tomes in the cells if they are still there and wins over Notch instantly by this. Morva rips the Moonstone out of the claw by ripping the claw off of the machine. Babrys carries Mytha without the Moonstone, and Rita tries to strangle Morva and hangs by his neck as he follows the group with the Moonstone. Getting back to the cottage, Babrys goes in while the other players wait outside. He opens the trap door to allow smoke to escape into the room and sees many lichens trying to jump and scratch their way out. He immediately shuts the door and slides a bed over it, telling the players that they're going to have to leave it behind. Mytha shows us the players a piece of parchment that she has. It's old and worn, but um, she has Quarian read it, because Notch, Morva, and Babrys do not read Elven at this point. Uh, Rita is uninterested and just wants the Moonstone returned to Unity, who had purchased it. Quarian, um, as he reads it, sees that it is a ritual to summon a god, and given the age of the information, um, actually given the age of the paper, he can't tell what god is actually being summoned. But uh, he does read that it will remove lycanthropy at the bottom of the page from the world if they collect a choker of Malar, a scale of Morin, and one gladiolus tristis flower. The parchment has handwritten notes all over it um, due, uh, related to the location of two of the items and the ritual spot. The choker of Malar is said to be hidden in the cove off of the Ketru path. Telus is found to be the best place to find a guide to navigate the Ketru path and Telus is very close to Unity. It's just a little further north between Tribeck and the Veyron Mountains. Morva is unaware that the scale of Morn is at Croach, but shares that all of his people have been slaughtered. Um, Mytha states that there is talk of a hidden passage, passage located in the Temple of Croach, also of which Morva was never informed. It may have already been stolen during the slaughter. Mytha tells players that she doesn't need them and the quest is her own. Morva is the first to say that he wants to come with and the others join him. Corian would like to notify Travis Dorth, which Rita is interested in doing as well, hoping he will be on her side. 
Notch turns in a letter for his time of leave from the library that he works at, and the players believe that the mural is about the race of lycanthropy being born in Felicia. Dorth makes a deal with the players to give them the stone, the moonstone, if they stay out of town, as he sees them as the source of all the trouble. He also wishes that they do not corrupt the town librarian, in which Corian informs him that Notch is actually coming with them already. They go to Fingen's farm to obtain horses for travel to Tellus. He lends them the horses and asks them to drop them off with his friend Ferrier. They take Belvin's way north and cross through a large forest of tall gray trees with white spots, the gray wood. There are many peering allies before they arrive to Tellus within these woods. The town is decked out with te- decorations, and there are tents located in multiple places in town. Their first stop in Tellus is at Steinbeck's Inn, which is currently hopping, and they find out that they are coming on to the final day of Founders Week, which is why there are so many people in town, and there are no rooms to stay in. Uh, arriving late, though, they do gain lodging using Corian's nobility in the tents out in the town square below a stature of the founder of the town, Belvin, who is a human that Notch didn't know much more than he is the one that the way is named after. They are warned of sleeping in the Greywood, for it is the domain of the Queen of the Owls, who is a jaded bride who feasts off the flesh of those who camp in her forest. Notch has a conversation with Mitha regarding the ritual. She states that the items must be taken to an incantation zone, where the items and her blood must be spilled to summon the god whose name is worn down, given time, but is assumed to be the original god of the moon who originally caused the curse. She states that the other tombs lost in the jail had town histories and research that provided ideas of locations for the ritual items, some of which have been preserved in the notes on this paper. The next day, they find the Feastville food-eating contest. They learn that Tellus sells many handmade goods, including pelts, wood carvings, and jewelry. The town's main export is lumber, but given its location, it has access to many jewels and rocks, some of which were traded for from the Vayron Mountain Dragonborns, of which they had good rapport. A jeweler, Bell, shares that Quarks is a mining town in the southwest that jewelers in the north avoid using materials from, given their methods of retrieval. She likens it to Hicks' processing plant. Bell is an NPC from Morva's background who provided him with the necklace on which he keeps the Stone Beast medallion. She directed him to Tribeck to find forge workers, and Uno in particular, to help discern the craftsmanship and possible origins of the medallion he found. She asks if he had any new leads and shares that Uno came up to tell us a couple days after Morva had left, in quite a hurry, and looked uneasy after his visit in Tribeck. Uno had told her that he was with an unsavory group who wanted his flesh, flesh so she was unable to make him wait. She didn't take it too seriously given Uno's regular experience with trouble. Morva shares that the dwarves in Felicia mined mostly diamonds, while the dragonborn were known for collecting other precious, precious stones before their slaughter. Next, the characters meet the three and a half foot wide, six foot tall half elf named Ferrier. Morva and Notch decide to partake in the festival eating contest, in which Morva consumes five plates, netting third place, while Notch consumes four plates, netting fourth place. Babries had found a betting pool beforehand and placed five gold on Morva that he lost. The characters engage Ferrier after, who had just finished in first place in the Feastaville, and agrees to take Fingen's horses back to him. He shares with them that there are guides to the Ketru Bath and uh, where they are, and which ones are native guides to Tellus, while some others are just there for the feast festival. 
Babri speaks to his bookie, both who had let him bet before about getting a guide to the Ketru path. He recommends Dave the half-elf, but until Babri's tips him, he then actually says that this is not the case and it is not safe to go with Dave. He warns of guides not helping with the survival aspect of traveling the path as well. The final event of the day is a tree climb in which Babries takes part racing to a tree, goes up it, grabs a pelt, and then puts the pelt in a bucket. He takes it safe to get up to the pelt and uses acrobatics to fall down 50 feet, grabbing a few branches along the way. Ultimately, he places fifth. Looking for someone to help get to the Hidden Cove, the characters find that most state that no one knows where the Hidden Cove is, and that the rates are based off of distance traveled, with the farthest destination being the Dwarven Mountain and Tin Noir. The price varies, but averages 125 gold. The guides that they interview are Enoch, a red-haired, multi-weapon-wielding female elf, Biherto, a holy craftsman, Ames, a middle-aged man who is battle-worn with a ginger animal companion dog named Orwellis, Dave, who is a super cheap drunk and claims to know where the cove is, Nilu, a female elf in riding boots, and Aaron, the pretty boy theatric. They choose Ames, who claims he is searching for the cove himself and offers a discount if they find the cove before he does while traveling together. They get ready for the journey and head out with Ames and his dog Orwellis. If things go well, they should arrive the same day that they leave. Before leaving with Ames, the characters go through their backpacks to see what they may need. Morva does not buy torches, but Babries gives him some of his own. Morva wraps the moonstone in cloth and ties it around his back. Ames and Orwellis lead the adventurers successfully to the gravestone, a mountainous 30-foot high stone, where they try to infer if the Ketru path continues to the left or the right of the stone that day. The path is temperamental and changes. Choosing to go left, the players find themselves going down a very bumpy hill with increasingly steep incline towards a dense forest. Getting to, be what, getting to what they believe would be the base of the forest, they find it is a thick network of large roots that allows space to fall through to a fairly obscured actual forest floor. As this is part of the path, the characters carefully traverse across the roots, until Babries missteps on a hollow root that causes him to fall through the root floor 15 feet, smacking the floor below, which appears to be overlaid in a sticky net, which holds him flat to the ground as he struggles to get out. This occurrence causes Morva and Corian to stumble but not fall through. Ame shares that this is not good as there is a savage people who lives on the forest floor. Corian prepares a rope to lower down to Babries, who surveys his surroundings to find no real sign of danger. He attempts to grab the rope, but cannot, so a discussion ensues about who will go down. Corian asks Ames to. Morva claims he is unable to see, and they don't want to draw attention with the torch. Ames claims that as the guide, it is important that he stays alive, and that their well-being is their own. Natch ends up going down with a knife in hand, and attempts to cut and separate the net holding Babries down. As he works on the net, he loses his balance from the rope and falls to the ground besides Babries, making a light crash noise. Corian follows in suits and trusts Morva to keep hold of the rope. As he climbs down, he sees three wild-looking humanoids wearing fur with a spear in each hand and black and red paint over their bodies and faces. They are slowly and quietly approaching their catch. Notch attempts to break free from the net, but is unable. Hanging from the rope again, Corian is able to quickly slice up the netting on the ground, allowing Babries to break free, but Notch is stuck as he struggles and becomes further entangled in the stickiness. The wild men reach the area as Babries gets up. 
They hide behind stacks of roots and brush to throw spears through the brush and quickly step out from behind the brush to hit the players. Notch gets a spear to his knee and summons the strength needed to break free. He uses this freedom to say some mean dark things within the head of one of the wild men. This hurts that man's feelings and causes him to run from Notch. Notch takes another spear for picking on the wild people's friends. A range battle ensues with spells and arrows and spears flying between the two parties while they take cover between shots. Notch fells the man he bullied. The head wild man is so enraged by the talk against his brother's mother that he runs the ten feet from uh, runs up to Notch ten feet away and throws a spear point blank at Notch, knocking him to the ground. Corian thunderwaves Notch's body for fun at this point, which was hanging by a thread. Babrys watches as Corian disregards their dying companion and continues to thunderwave like an adolescent Raichu, then heads to Notch's body and fails to stop the streams of blood pouring from his spear wounds. Hopeless, Babrys runs over to the head wild man. Corian looks down to see the blood of Notch pulling at his feet from Notch's body, which is 20 foot away, and walks over and spends about three seconds to easily stop the bleeding, securing Notch's teetering fate of two fails and one pass in the 5th edition saving throw rules. Babrys is slugging it out with the final wild man until he sees the divine opening like a gift from a god and plunges his rapier into the right lung of his opponent who dies on his blade then is kicked off. The party makes their way back up the roots and take a short rest for Notch's benefit. The players continue forward watching their step until Notch hits a slick moss-covered branch and slides down through a gap in the forest floor where he hits the ground among many eggs that smell pungent. He quickly gets back up to the path and continues along, unfazed. In the final leg through the forest, Notch's lack of physical finesse shows one final time as he falls again, though this time without concern from his fellow party members. Uh, what he is lucky to find, though, is a dead body, uh, which he loots the knapsack, a knapsack off of. Notch notices that the top of the sack has a mechanical device, and he hands it over to Babrys upon getting up top again, who tinkers with some thieves' tools until it clicks open, which actually combusts, uh, burning Babrys and lighting the sack contents on fire. Morva goes to kick the knapsack to stop the fire, but slips and falls through the floor, Everyone is unable to save what appears to have been a book of arcane writings. The characters reach the edge of the forest to find themselves at a mountainside. Amis believes this is the location of the hidden cove, and shares with the party what he has collected about finding the cove from other guides and wise men and women. 1. The entrance to the cave can be seen from up high. 2. The entrance to the cove is a door but not a door. 3. If you find a water tunnel, there is no turning back, but you've traveled too far. Fabrice shimmies up a tree as everyone starts searching around the base of the mountain. He identifies that the upper half of the mountain is covered in snow and there is no sign of water. The players continue their search up the side of the mountain, getting into deeper snow. Upon reaching a high up point, Quarian perceives grooves in the mountain's side, shown by a dip in the snow. Fabrice, upon hearing this, begins to run, jump, and slide in these grooves. Some, he finds, are small until he finds a very large 40-foot wide and 100-foot long groove around the center of all these other grooves. Morva heads down this groove to where the snow stops and finds nothing. Notch attempts to detect any sort of magic or looks around for things that may be magical. In his search, he does see that there are small flecks uh, in the groove that seem to radiate magic. Following this trail, he grabs the others and finds a clear bluish green crystal that looks like a mirror from above. 
um, but actually getting close shows the underground cove. Ames pays up for their help in finding it. Ames is unable to axe through, uh, but does chip away. They attempt to place the moonstone around against and then allow the light through the moonstone then through the crystal to get in. At this point, the moonstone falls and makes a dent in the crystal. Morva comes over with his hammer and smashes through the opening in three attacks. The hidden gove is full of crystal growth that makes out a hewn out inside of the mountain. There are large crystalline platforms that are possible walkways for the party. Babries breaks off a piece of crystal to take with him. Ame shares that though he has never been in the cove, he lost something there. When pushed, he claims he's dropped it on the mountain and haven't, hasn't been able to find it since. Players start through the cove and go into an alcove with a body and equipment covered in crystal growth and similar stalactite ceiling. As Corrin approaches the body, he fails to notice that one of the stalactite on the roof is moving and it fit, uh, falls onto his head, enveloping him and making him unable to breathe and see. Bayri shoots an arrow at this creature and Quarion's face, and though it hits, it appears to do very little damage due to the crystal growth on it. Notch blows poison at it, but the mantle holds its breath. The characters attempt to pull the dark mantle off, while Quarion starts stumbling towards the characters. The dark mantle casts magical darkness, then begins crushing Quarion's head. Morva tries to get a grip on the dark mantle in the darkness, but instead ends up crushing Quarion's nuts, uh, causing the first audible noise from Quarion since the dark mantle landed on him. He tries to rip off the mantle one more time before the mantle crushes his head another and final time knocking him unconscious. Hearing a body drop to the floor, Morva unleashes a risky cone of cold that makes contact with its target and fells the mantle, as well as numbing Quarion's nether regions. On the crystal-covered body that had caused this, there is found two potions of cure wounds, which take care of Quarion's physical damage, leaving him only with the psychological. He takes the dark mantle into his backpack to turn into a cape later. Ames was realized by the players to be in a state of shock during all of this and needs to be snapped out of it. Continuing down the path, they see two more crystalline Skeletons and weapons, Babries lights a torch and throws it towards the bodies, which awakens an animated longsword, dagger, and shield all covered in crystals. The characters make quick work of the dagger and shield, but Notch blasts a strong Eldritch Blast, which knocks him back off of a ledge. He is luckily able to grab the ledge and pull himself back up after Babries finishes the final longsword. Corrin picks up this weapon and stows it. Further into the cove, a large platform with a 20-foot diameter circular hole through it is investigated. The fairy dust earlier found in the grooves in the mountain is again found here, trapped in the crystal. And looking down through the hole uh, in some crystal growth, there is something very large at the bottom of the cove. Corian wonders if Ames dropped the thing that made this large hole as they continue to the bottom. Notch investigates the edge of the platform that they are on and finds a near-invisible platform that they carefully follow down to a skinny five foot wide circular disc. Some distance from them, they can see two suits of armor that appear to be standing and floating. Uh, well, we'll go with floating on that one. One to the left diagonally and one to the right diagonally from them. There are also two bright blue lights floating even further away straight ahead of them. Babri shoots at a very far range and though his arrow looks as though it should have made contact with the small figure and the floating blue eyes, the arrow disappears when it enters that space. The small figure with the blue eyes retreats. 
Baybreeze continues to range the enemies as they creep forward each round. Notch notices that the armor is definitely walking on the surface, even though the surface is unseen. They retreat after the other figure into the small crystal cave and uh, continue to take more ranged damage along the way. Morva confirms that there is a bottom to the cove by dropping an item off of the side. The players follow down the invisible pathway that the two suits had retreated on before and find it leads them to a 10-foot opening to that crystal cave, inside of which they find the two suits of armor um, without any weapons covered in crystals and a small boy with ripped clothes. His face is occluded with the crystal growth, uh, but has two magical-looking blue eyes that peer through it. The boy casts a magical aura that covers himself in the two suits of armor. The armor attempt to slam down Morva, who had begun to rage, and is generally unaffected by their piercing and bludgeoning damage. Ames works his way into the room past the characters to see the young boy and yells, No, my son. Ames runs towards the boy and is blasted back by a magic missile. Upon his second attempt towards his son, he is knocked unconscious by another magic missile, both of which were casted by the son. The battle continues with the party dismantling the two suits of armors first. Then, after Morva goes down, they find no choice but to thunderwave the boy. Then Babri stabs the boy in the back through the lungs. Koran patches up Ames and keeps him from dying. Crystals fall off the boy's body, and he flops to the floor, cold, lifeless, and without natural color. Koran believes the original cause of death was starvation. Morva's body fails to fight its failing state. Babri's and Notch fail to help him as well and Corian is able to secure him, though his balls had told him to do differently. They notice two chests in the room that they are in, which they open to find one is full with gold, which Babries then takes, and a book in the other chest with which Notch takes. Ames awakens and explains that he, his men, and his child are immigrants from the western land. He further states that they were forced to leave their land due to a shortage in food, and that while camping on this mountain one night, a large silver meteorite crashed into it, throwing Ames in a tumble down the mountain while some magical force pulled his party and son after the meteorite down into the hole that it created. He was unable to find the hole when he hurried back up the mountain. He gave up after a day of searching and thought it better to try and find a town so he could gain supplies and a search party to come back. Ames picks up his son and says he would like to leave, but Corian asks him to stay with the party to ensure his safety, so he agrees to wait in this room until the adventurers come back. The next area is the cove floor, and is generally wide open, with some stone pillars. Players take a short rest, then Mytha offers to heal the players for the first time since they've met her, out of her glee in almost finding the choker, and due to the dirty look from some of the players. The meteor is found, and has a blue light pulsing at its center. There are trails of crystal lines that extend from it up the walls to the pillars and along the floor. Also within eyesight is a large wolf that is seen sleeping on the ground with crystal patches in its fur and a choker around its neck, which is assumed to be the choker of Malar. Babri stealths toward the wolf, but is not stealthy enough, awakening the wolf. The large crystal fur ball stretches and howls, causing the crystal meteorite to grow a brighter blue, until the silver dust begins lifting around all the players and swirling into a dense blizzard, obscuring vision beyond ten feet around each of the players. As this wind kicks up, Babri sees the blue pulsing of the meteor and begins stealthing towards it, though losing sight of it on his way. 
The wolf runs in and attacks him during this time, then runs back into the blizzard for cover. Notch readies himself for combat, but moves further in the direction that he thinks the wolf was. Morva tries to talk to Mitha, but his voice is lost in the blizzard. He charges towards the direction where he remembers the meteor to be, and is attacked by the wolf who hits him with a bite. Corian is unaware of everyone's ultimate location, but yells at the top of his lungs for everyone to gather up around him. Babries and Notch continue blindly towards the meteor. Morva and Quarion ready attacks against the wolf, which is constantly biting, tripping, or trying to trip Morva. Babries reaches the meteor first and stabs his rapier into the flesh-like stone repeatedly until he exposes the blue crystal core. Morva struggles to hit the wolf and comes near death when Babries finally hits the crystal within the meteor, shattering it and instantly calming the fairy dust storm around them. Notch has an internal feeling of despair when this occurs. With the storm gone, Quarian and Notch blast spells at the wolf while Morva smashes it. Together, they kill the beast and notice that the crystals on his bodies have all but fallen off and the cove crystals are falling around, falling apart around them. Babries hastily removes the choker from the wolf, then spots a chest in the distance. Throwing the choker to Morva, he dashes to it and finds a bluish orb, a spear with lightning inscribed on it, two gloves with webs on them, and a cloak. While the other characters retreat to the path, Notch runs to the crystal and pulls the flesh-like stone apart, finding a small fairy at the bottom, which he picks up and stores. The cove is now beginning to fall apart around them, with large stone pillars collapsing against the mountain walls, stalactites falling from the ceiling. Almace already started rushing to the cave entrance, without his son, when things started falling apart, while Mitha waited to ensure the safety of the choker. Notch attempts to find the see-through pathway, leading up to get them out of the cove, but fails in his search. Morva skips the pathway and begins to start jumping and climbing to find his own way up and out using the collapsed pillars. Corian leads the rest of the party forward a bit, using knowledge of Notch's failure. Mitha looks to Babries to get them further, noting the slowed and possible fatal pace the party is taking. She gives him an awkward and forced smile with an attempted encouraging words. Babries holds his hands along the floor while moving at a quick pace as if he were stealthing towards a lung that needs to be deflated. His focused state leads the party through the invisible pathways where Notch suddenly remembers and sees the path out. He rushes the party, getting them out just in time as the entrance behind them collapses. Morva is sitting out front with Ames, who comments on Morva's insane jumping and climbing skills. The party camps at the base of the mountain safely, and the next morning, Babries shakes out his pants and jacket to allow a bunch of gold and trinkets to fall out, as well as four items that he found in the chest at the bottom of the cove. Babries puts on the cloak of protection and gloves of missile, missile snaring. Quarian picks up a drift globe. Morva picks up a javelin of lightning. Notch takes the time to look at the arcane book which he had found in the cove by itself in a chest. He realizes that every page has the same arcane seal, which he reads, Imprisons the Horse of Air. Not showing his curiosity, attempts to release the being without any questions. Though he fails on his first attempt, he vows to study more and try again later. The small blue pixie that he found within the fleshy meteor appears alive but incapacitated. They move forward, and when getting into the forest, Ame stops and looks at a tree knot that roughly looks like a face. He collapses crying, but thanks the party for helping him find his son even if he was too late. His body begins to merge back into the ethereal plane, leaving the characters alone in the woods, on the Ketchu bath with the man's ginger dog, Urwellis. Morva is voted to go and try to bomb with the dog, 
which they hope will help lead them back to Tellus, where they can restock and then head to the Veyron Mountains in search of Morin's scale. Morva is successful in this and begins to lead the party along the Ketru path. Orwellis takes Morva for a walk through the forest with no issues. They remember next that they need to find the Great Stone. The dog and Morva pause to play catch with one another, and their synchronicity pays off as they are able to find the Great Stone with no trouble. At the stone, Orwellis pees on the right-hand side, just because she wanted to mark the area, but Morva, feeling so good about their success so far, believes this to mean that she wanted them to go right, which gets them lost for four hours, wandering before they find the gray wood in the distance. It is getting dark as they get off, get to the road that leads through the gray wood into Tellus. Out of fear of the tales of the Queen of Owls, they choose to camp outside of the forest for the night, until day. During the evening, Notch is feverishly looking at the seal he failed to break when Babrys comes over and asks what he's up to. Notch explains that the book has sealed up a horse of air, which Babrys connects to his earthen horse figurine. Notch, paying little attention to the figure and more to the book, catches his mistake. Nana, not Anna. He chants the seal perfectly now and unlocks the book, which begins to stir and lift from his hands as a gold dust swirls and forms in front of him into an identical shape and size of Babrys' horse. Notch attempts to put the horse back into the book, but when closing it, the horse rises above it. When an object gets close to the horse, it repels from it so that it cannot be actually touched. It is at this point in the campaign where all of us found out that if you want to know anything about an item and what it does, all you have to do is spend a short rest looking at it, and bam, open the DMG and all that info is yours. Everyone magically decided that now is a good time for a short rest and figure out every item that they have. Notch trades his air horse for the Cloak of Protection. Babrys finds a big jar and puts the air horse in it. Within Tellus, they spend the gold on studded leather for Notch, they buy a ton of potions of healing, and Babrys finds out that the magical items in the DMG have no price value. Morva takes Aurelis the dog to Belle, who doesn't want her, so Belle takes the dog to Ferrier, who chooses to love her, where the party will not. Babrys trades his cove crystal for a black pearl to help the casters cast identify in the future. That pretty much wraps up our part one of season one. I am sorry for a lot of the missteps throughout it, but hey, you were not here for entertainment. You were here for info and knowledge. So to close us out, a little bit of info and knowledge for you. Did you know that Quarian dresses himself to look like a knight? He also owns a private squire that is back at the keep. Notch wears glasses that he doesn't need to make him seem not as scary, given that he is a tiefling and looks rather... Uh, abyssal, we'll say, instead of devilish. And Babrys was in love, but left the biddy for the sea. I um, also plan on answering a lot of the questions that weren't fully answered in Season 1, so you can look forward to finding out uh, where Mytha and the Lycans of Light got all their tomes from in Season 2. And uh, you can also find out the origins of the Moonstone and how it arrived at Unity. Thank you for tuning in to the Pathless Podcast. Bring the hate mail any way possible through our Twitter at, at PathlessPod, through contact at PathlessPod.com, or our Facebook page, the Pathless Podcast. We are really, really looking for more five-star reviews with scathing negative remarks, or if you really, really are a jerk, lots of one-star reviews with really, really nice remarks about how good we're doing. So thank you guys again. This was Ben of the Pathless Podcast, and I hope you have a wonderful evening contemplating everything that happened in part one of season one. Expect part two next week. Bye-bye.